I may not be able to move some animals because now we're in a, a state with positive animals and some other state doesn't want our animals, even if we're not in control zone. So looking at the whole, what would we do if we couldn't move animals like we do today? It's like going to be the, one of the largest challenges we face. And, and you know, I, producers need to start thinking about what would they do in the worst case if they couldn't move animals? It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry. One that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. Swine It Podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like NutriQuest, experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. Gestal, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adiseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high quality, safe, and sustainable way. Every Pig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Minitube, the worldwide leading supplier of systems for the field of assisted animal reproduction. Merck Animal Health, driven by prevention. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show. I am Laura Greiner, your host for today's episode. This episode's sponsored highlight is about Genesis. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high, healthy, registered purebred swine on the globe, having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis genetic program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield, and meat quality. To know more, go to genesis.com. That's G-E-N-E-S-U-S dot com. Hello, everyone. I'm Laura Greiner, your host for today's SwineNet podcast. And with me today, I have Dr. Liz Wagstrom, who is our chief veterinarian with the National Pork Producers Council. How are you today, Liz? I'm great, Laura. Thanks for having me on. Well, we're excited to have you here today. Um, Liz, as you know, our audience is quite diversified and they may not be very familiar with who you are. So would you mind giving us just a little bit of a background about who you are and how you got to where you're at today? Sure. Um, I'm Liz Wagstrom. I work for the National Pork Producers Council. So I kind of like to start out and say what NPPC actually is. There are two main producer-led organizations in the United States swine industry, and that's NPPC, so the Pork Producers Council. We are a membership organization. We are funded by membership fees, and our role is to do advocacy on behalf of pork producers as well as looking at opening up international trade markets. The other organization is the National Pork Board, and Pork Board's mission is um, funded by the checkoff, so it's funded by a mandatory fee that all producers pay when they sell animals, and their mission is um, promotion of the product, education, and research. And so I started out actually right after vet school. I worked for a short time at Iowa Select Farms um, during the end of Saudi Arabia's eradication. So that was um, 
eye-opening as a new young veterinarian to be dealing with, with pseudorabies and PERS and all of those um, uh, diseases that are, um, well, at least pseudorabies is gone and, and PERS, I think we have a little better idea of how to handle. Um, and after that, I um, went to the Minnesota Department of Health. So very odd transition, but at the Minnesota Department of Health, I worked on foodborne disease outbreaks as well as zoonotic disease concerns. So doctors would call and say, I have somebody who got bit by a dog. Do they need a rabies vaccine? Or they had a bad exposure. So totally unrelated to pigs, but I, I really missed pigs a lot. And so I was fortunate enough, I got to go to the National Pork Board. I was there for about 10 years, started out doing on-farm food safety. And by the time I was done, I expanded to where I did um, antimicrobial re resistance, zoonotic disease. Um, so during H1N1 pandemic, that was kind of in my wheelhouse among the other support we had there. Um, and at the end of H1N1, um, I spent a year at the University of Minnesota with a public policy um, veterinary residency program and had a lot of fun with that, but still really missed pigs and was fortunate enough to come to NPPC in 2011. And I've been there since. Um, I am in and out of DC. I'm officially a Des Moines um, office, officed in Des Moines. Um, but spend a tremendous amount of time in D.C. working with our regulatory agencies, USDA, FDA, Customs and Border Protection, as well as, um, although I'm not a registered lobbyist, I make sure I don't spend too much time doing lobbying efforts. I do get up to Capitol Hill on occasion to work on behalf of pork producers. And so that's kind of how we got to where I am. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've had a fascinating history and lots of experience, I think, um, certainly with managing disease and disease risk. And that really leads us into what we wanted to talk about today, which, of course, is ASF and, and its recent transition into the Dominican Republic. So maybe let's just start with, with what we know today on, on ASF's transmission to the Dominican Republic and, and maybe where where we're kind of targeting right now for the concern with the U.S. in case people aren't familiar with, with where we're exactly at. Sure. And, you know, I want to start out and say that this is a big deal. You know, we're not minimizing it. But one of the things to consider is that the Dominican Republic and Haiti, which share the island of Hispaniola, um, have been positive for classical spine fever since probably the 60s or 70s. So um, even though ASF is a more um, concerning disease because we don't have a vaccine for it, um, because the OIE code, which OIE is the animal, World Animal Health Organization, their code treats ASF differently than they do CSF. So classical swine fever, if you have, if a country has classical swine fever in their feral pig population, they're still allowed to export pork as if they were free of classical swine fever, as long as they don't have it in their domestic pigs. We don't have that same breakdown with ASF, with African swine fever, if a country's positive, 
they're likely to lose their entire export market. So that's just a little bit of the difference. Um, maybe it's reassuring, maybe it's not for, for people who have seen um, the news about African swine fever in the Dominican Republic. So what we actually know is that um, in 2019, USDA started a cooperative surveillance program with the Dominican Republic and the Dominican veterinary medical officers will um, collect samples from farms. Uh, we understand they try to spread that around the island geographically and they collect those samples and on a quarterly basis, and I'm going to put quarterly in air quotes because it seems like it might not quite fit into a three month period they um, try to get those sent to Plum Island. And that's um, a logistical nightmare for them because first of all, they have to find dry ice, which I understand is difficult to find on the island. Then they have to put it on a direct flight to JFK airport, which um, of course, during the pandemic, those didn't fly very often. And then it, it is transported from JFK out to the island to be tested. So the last batch of um, routine surveillance samples USDA got was um, middle of July, um, toward the, well, the third week of July. And they were alerted by the Dominican VMOs that there were some samples that they had concerns about the clinical pictures on the farm. And so they ran those 12 samples first from two different farms and came up with eight positives for ASF. And so that definitely put things into motion. Since then, they've run the other 300 and some samples. Those samples were as old as February, but the oldest positive samples they had were from the middle of May. And um, it ended up that there are 14 provinces out of the 32 in the Dominican Republic that they have positive samples for. Um, Right now, the military in the Dominican Republic is depopulating those sites. Um, we understand just from the news reports that I'm sure the rest, a lot of your um, uh, viewers have also read that the military has killed somewhere around 30,000 animals. They're paying indemnity, but we also understand from talking with um, the Pork Producer Association there that there are concerns among pork producers, whether they will actually really be indemnified, whether they'll be indemnified at market rate, et cetera. Um, a lot of these pigs, we understand, are kept in what they call cooperative farms, which appears to be a village will have a backyard farm that people, you know, multiple people in the village own pigs that are within this Maybe it's an enclosure, maybe they're free roaming, but they are part of a village farm. And so then that becomes, of course, difficult to decide who actually gets indemnified for those pigs. Um, those pigs, uh, if they're free roaming, aren't always just on site when somebody comes to depopulate them. So um, very, very difficult. Um, and then from there, we understand that the, the veterinary authorities are are drawing control zones, I guess you'd call it, around the positive farms and collecting samples if there's no clinical signs. But we have also been told that if there are clinical signs, the authorities are considering those positive farms and going ahead and depopulating them without testing. 
So USDA just last week got another 400 samples to test, and I think those are all from areas around control zones. Um, and so that's kind of what we know about the clinical picture there. Um, we do know that um, USDA is um, this week sending laboratory technicians to the DR to get a PCR machine set up to try to get reagents down there. Um, now, cold chain is always an issue. Um, you can run out of, of electricity, and if they don't have the right uh, generators, et cetera, keeping reagents cold is, is a concern. But the hope is that the Dominican Republic could run their own samples for ASF and possibly samples from Haiti, which shares the island. It would save from Haiti having to try to do the whole thing with cold chain and direct flights, et cetera. Um, obviously, that's been complicated. We, you may re, um, remember there was a major earthquake about 10 days ago on the island. Um, we know that there was uh, Tropical Storm Grace just went through there, didn't do as much damage as might have been expected. But um, we definitely know that there are some logistical concerns. Are you ready for the most innovative web conference of the swine industry? Swine Talks, the TED Talks of the global swine industry on October 6th and 7th, 2021, with over 25 internationally renowned speakers who will deliver powerful and engaging talks. Reserve now your spot at swinetalks.com. Sure. Yeah, I think you certainly addressed some of the questions I had, particularly with the earthquake and, and how that was affecting some of the progress that's being made. And it, it certainly is very unfortunate for those producers in the DR to have to face uh, the challenges that they're going to um, as they depopulate those, those herds. Um, I think one of the questions I've, I've probably heard a couple of times now is how does that change what we're doing today in the U.S.? How have we responded or, or changed, you know, from, from the top down? So right. could you maybe start um, kind of helping us understand what maybe has changed? Absolutely. And I would say that there are multiple agencies within the U.S. government that are aware and involved, and that goes anywhere from... You know, we had talks with State Department about aid workers that might be going into Haiti to help with the earthquake to make sure that they are disinfecting shoes or leaving shoes behind, et cetera. Um, the two biggest agencies that we've been working with or departments that we've been working with are USDA, the Department of Agriculture, and then Homeland Security. So USDA has got several things going. One is that they are... Um, trying to offer aid to Haiti or uh, to the DR as well as Haiti in any way they could. So whether it's personal protective equipment, whether it's an offer to send people in to help with depopulation and trace back, et cetera, um, there has not been a lot of official requests for help. And of course, we can't just go in and start killing other people's pigs or doing trace backs. So that's um, kind of in the... I don't know if you'd call it the dating phase of the relationship. You know, we are offering assistance. We are, but we are, haven't yet been invited in to meet mom and dad. You know, that's if you look at it as a dating relationship. Um, and 
and the DR has also gotten help from the FAO, which is part of the UN, United Nations, as well as there's a couple organizations within South and Central America. There's AICA and ORISA, and I don't, I can't tell you what the initials stand for, but they are um, organizations that are animal health related within the um, within South America. And um, we've even talked with pork producers from other countries like the Chilean pork producers um, have got a group of 18 or 19 countries, pork associations that are working together to try to limit the spread within the Caribbean and South and Central America. Um, then for us, you know, one of our biggest concerns obviously is Puerto Rico. Because if Puerto Rico goes positive, our chief veterinary officer at USDA is going to be the person responsible for having to um, report that to the OIE. And we will have some trading partners, if not most trading partners, um, consider the United States as a whole to be positive. And that could really damage our exports. So um, what we've talked with USDA a lot about is working with Customs and Border Protection, as well as the Coast Guard, uh, as well as Border Patrol, to try to make sure that any boat traffic between the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico is highly inspected, that they're met with dogs, that they're met with um, they're interdicted by the Coast Guard where they're removing certain plant materials that are illegal to move, as well as all meat products. Um, it's very hard to turn refugees away, you know, and so you can't necessarily turn the boat around and send them back into the Caribbean, but you can take away the illegal products they have. Um, and we do hear, I mean, last year during the pandemic, they had, they interdicted 300 of what they call yolas that are the canoes where people were leaving the island of Hispaniola and seeking refuge in, um, in Puerto Rico. So it is a daily basis that they have to uh, interdict those boats. They have to try to take any illegal products away. Um, we also know USDA is up to their um, uh, activity against the urban feral pigs that they have in Puerto Rico. Right after Hurricane Maria, it appears that a lot of people had had Vietnamese potbelly pigs as pets. They were turned loose and they have thrived within the cities with eating garbage in a tropical um, uh, climate. They haven't had um, any, con I mean, they have have multiplied greatly. So USDA had started a plan where they were depopulating those animals, figured it would take five to six years, doing some surveillance and testing on those animals, which was really a good thing to have historical surveillance that they are free of African swine fever and free of classical swine fever. Um, now USDA has upped their um, timeline to try to get those all those animals killed within 12 to 18 months, which is still longer than we would like, but um, but a much more aggressive timeline because clearly garbage animals subsisting on garbage is not a uh, is a high risk activity. Um, there are people who feed garbage um, that are licensed garbage feeders in Puerto Rico. USDA has increased their inspections where 
We know they can safely feed garbage if they will boil it for 30 minutes before it's fed. That'll inactivate virus. And well, I think we, we would all love to see no garbage feeding anywhere in the United States. Um, if inspected garbage feeding can be done safely, um, it's probably better than having people do it without inspection where they would, would cut corners. And then finally, when you get to the United States mainland, um, Customs and Border Protection has increased their activity on incoming flights, incoming cruise ships, um, making sure that anything coming out of the Caribbean is met with the beagles, that they're, they're inspected more, um, more rigorously than they might have been before. And then the other thing that they have done during pandemic, which I think has been extremely helpful, um, and that includes within Puerto Rico as well as the United States, is Customs and Border Protection um, diverted some of their inspectors that might have been meeting airplanes to um, validating that garbage from international vessels is being appropriately handled. So whether that's cruise ships, airlines, or car cargo ships, that that garbage goes under seal to an incinerator and is incinerated rather than put into a landfill that you know feral pigs could get to. So that's kind of top line of some of the increase in activity. Um, I think that we have some law enforcement agencies um, such as Customs and Border Protection and Coast Guard that are doing other things they haven't let us know about because they're law enforcement and they, they have some of those things they do that is more confidential than they've shared with us. No, I understand that. that but that, I think that gives us a really good um, idea of what's happening because that's been the conversation I've heard over the last few weeks is what happens if Puerto Rico goes positive. And right. Certainly with the issues that have happened recently in Haiti with the earthquake, you know, and, and some of the, the human conditions there, it, it's always a concern that we're going to see that potential. Yeah. Um, and so what I'm hearing from you is that we are increasing the surveillance there in Puerto Rico. Are we increasing surveillance here? So I, example would be, I've, I've heard some people say, well, we need to do more with the wild boar population even here in the U.S. And of course, push harder for that surveillance. A lot of people fear that might be the first place right. we see the disease. And so have we done anything here in the mainland? So our wildlife services has a goal of um, collecting at least 6,000 samples from wild boar. Um, but mainly with those samples, they are testing for classical swine fever, um, brucellosis, and I think PERS may be the third one they're testing for. I can't remember the third pathogen. They are only testing um, found dead wild boar. So if they find wild boar that are, or wild boar, wild pigs, um, I'm, to, I'm talking European here when I say wild boar. Yeah. Um, if you find feral pigs that are dead that aren't obviously hit by car or gunshot or something like that, um, then they are asking their um, their wildlife services officers or conservation officers to collect samples and send them in. Um, that means they collect just a few hundred samples every year on those um, on those animals versus the 6,000 that they're collecting for classical swine fever. So we've had discussions on pros and cons of increasing that surveillance. I think that they are definitely um, looking at those surveillance plans, looking at how to increase 
awareness on um, reporting of anything that's found dead and making sure that that those um, those unexplained dead wild animals are sampled. Um, you know, I think that the thought is if we have healthy animals in healthy herds that they're depopulating, whether it's from airplanes or trapping to kill, et cetera, that's, that's probably not your highest risk individual to find a, an African swine fever animal. Um, the other thing, we just had a discussion last Friday with wildlife services that they're really increasing is their attempts to use um, nitrite as a bore, as a bait for wild um, pigs to really try to look at decreasing populations nationwide of our wild pigs. And there had been some um, initial concerns with using it that there were songbirds that were getting into the bait. So they've changed the consistency of the bait so it's less crumbly so that so that what's left over of the bait shouldn't be available for songbirds. It's not of a consistency that songbirds would get into. So they're they're doing trying to get to a place where they're doing surveillance, but they're also really looking at population control and um, decreasing the population of, of wild um, or feral pigs. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good, very good. So we've kind of talked upper level, right? What's happening in the DR, what's where we're at with Puerto Rico and, and the mainland, but let's go down to the producer, right? So we've got a lot of people working for us trying to keep the disease out and, and manage the, the borders, but what can we do internally to help protect ourselves? So one of the things that I think is fascinating, if you look at what African swine fever looks like in a sick pig or a dead pig, it looks not unlike really severe PERS or septicemia from salmonella or, or a multitude of other diseases we have. But if you look at it, we have almost no foreign animal disease investigations done on those kind of pigs on the farm. We have surveillance in our diagnostic labs where if, if samples come in and the history sounds like it could be African swine fever, those, those samples or those submissions are tested um, just routinely and the government picks up the costs of those. Um, I would challenge producers that working with their veterinarians to say, is this worth having a foreign animal disease investigation? Are we seeing something? Uh, and part of that is um, you not only build confidence in our system that we could catch it um, early if we had it, you also probably build some competency among the veterinary medical officers in your state or federal that will be having to deal with, with um, positive farms if we do end up with an outbreak. So it's an inconvenience, um, definitely to have a foreign animal disease investigation, but you know we do hundreds, no thousands of them now every year for Seneca Valley. Some of those come back to the farms, some don't. But to, to try to say, you know, challenge your veterinarians to think, is this a case where it'd be worth having a foreign animal disease investigation? Um, obviously, when your producers are working with their veterinarians, um, as well as other service people that they, they work with, is the whole idea of reviewing again and um, even auditing or validating your biosecurity 
So I think we all talk about biosecurity. I, all of our commercial producers have biosecurity plans. How often do you have somebody really audit or evaluate whether it's truly being followed? Um, or say, what have we missed? Did we put this in place three or four or five years ago? And we haven't reevaluated. You know, we haven't looked at new potential um, hazards that we may have on the farm. Um, so obviously, biosecurity is going to be key. Um, and then the one thing that I always throw out there that um, probably makes people like it's probably like chalk on a chalkboard for many people is to consider your pig movements. Um, I think we're so vulnerable about how we move pigs. And I understand our needs within production, within our multi-site production on moving pigs, but how are we moving our call animals? And what is the risk we have with that? And so um, I think some of our big sow consolidators um, do a good job of um, buying sows, getting them um, quickly sorted into different sizes and immediately sent to a final destination. And they, they keep traceability. We have other situations where we hear that's, that those animals are in market channels for weeks. You know, they maybe change hands from person to person to person um, before they end up in a group that goes to a final market or go final packing plant. And by then, if you wanted to do a trace back, it would be very, very difficult. And so that to me is a challenge. The other thing I see um, that I would say would be immediately shut down if we had an outbreak is our sending our lightweight market hogs to a packing plant who then sort them off before they go through anamortem inspection. Um, it is definitely a convenience for the producer to do that. Um, I would say that if we have an outbreak, that's going to stop. So do you have a backup plan for that? Are those animals that get euthanized on the farm? Are those animals that you have enough of them that you take them directly to a, a market that will buy lightweight animals? Um, so those are, are some of the challenges I would have with how we move animals. And then probably the final one is to say, if we had an outbreak, at minimum, we are going to have a 72-hour stop movement standstill in the United States. I think 72 hours is optimistic. I wouldn't be surprised if it would go to double that, if it would go to a week or more where we would not be moving animals. So what's your plan? As a, as a producer, you know, we, we ran into some of that during COVID and people did a great job of doing everything they could to not have to put down animals and to look for ways to keep animals. But it's going to be a similar situation if we have a, a stop movement. Um, and it'll be maybe more, more because all animals will stop. There won't be some animals moving. And then you will have those challenges of, I may not be able to move some animals because now we're in a a state with positive animals and some other state doesn't want our animals, even if we're not in control zone. So, so looking at the whole, what would we do if we could move animals like we do today is a, it's like 
going to be the one of the largest challenges we face. And, and, you know, I, producers need to start thinking about what would they do in the worst case if they couldn't move animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you raised some really good points. Um, I've always told people to think about uh, how PED moves onto a farm and, and PERS, even though they behave differently and their transmission routes are different, right? Any way that we see gaps for any disease coming into a farm is really that opportunity to identify better biosecurity. Yep, uh, so absolutely. I, think you, I think you raise a great point about closing those gaps and lessons learned, right? Even a, a three-day snowstorm it helps us figure out how to manage feed on a farm and, and take all of that to put it into a good ASF plan. Um, I think I'd also encourage our, our audience, if, if you are a producer and you haven't participated in a tabletop exercise of an FAD outbreak, to try to get you know, an extension group to put one on or, or somebody to walk you through that because I've, I've done that myself and it was a phenomenal experience to really start to put the pieces together and think about, well, what if I can't do this or I can't do that? And, and you do, you role play with an out-of-state vet and they make that decision. Do you get to move pigs or not at that moment? And you have to respond. And, and so absolutely that preparedness, I think should continue and, and probably even more so today than, yep. than maybe at the speed we were going the last few years. And I know COVID kind of changed a lot of directions that we were headed, but. Right, and I, I absolutely agree with you on the tabletop. Um, we're actually going through a series right now where the Packers are, are doing some tabletops to say, what would happen if instead of finding ASF on a farm, it was found in a packing plant? Or what if a packing plant's in a control zone? You know, what do we do? How do we handle it? Um, and out of that, of course, I think, um, you know, you, you gave me three things, but I'm going to say four or five is okay. the idea of um, looking at the secure pork supply um, program. I think it helps with identifying some of those biosecurity needs and gaps. Um, and the, the other thing is just consider taking a look at AgView, which is one way you could get data to the authorities who are going to need or want data um, in the case of an outbreak, especially um, if you're looking to move animals or do tracebacks, et cetera. Yeah, I think you have some wonderful suggestions there for our audience. So Liz, as we kind of wrap up our discussion on ASF and, and particularly traceability there towards the end, are there any key points that you would like our, our listening group to take home today? Sure. Well, I think the, the main point is um, do everything within your operation you can to be able to um, know your risks, identify your risks, um, know where your animals come from, know where your animals are going to, and consider options if, number one, you can't get the animals you're expecting, and number two, if you can't move your animals in, in the way you would normally do so. So I think just looking at all of those worst-case scenarios and trying to uh, figure out what you would do rather than wait for, an, you know, lack of a better term, an oh shit moment when you have to deal with, with something that was unexpected. Mm-hmm. Very good. It is time to our famous three. 
Celebrating its 25th anniversary, Gestahl manufactures the original wireless standalone swine feeding system, designed by pork producers for pork producers. They are simple, reliable, and provide peace of mind 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Gestahl is not just manufactured by an equipment company, but by a family pork production business with a slat level understanding. Gestahl, always one step ahead in swine feeding. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. Well, as we wrap up our conversation today, there's three questions that we like to ask all of our guests uh, who come on the podcast. And so the first question I ask you is, what's your favorite swine resource book? So I am very much biased toward the diseases of swine. It is my go-to, um, you know, if I, and I have a lot of reporters who call and want to know about some virus somewhere. So between diseases of swine and then the Schick website, those are my two resources. So my hardcover diseases of swine and my virtual uh, Swine Health Information Center website. Very good. Yes, those are always very popular books, but they are so valuable. That's, that is for sure. How about something that's maybe not swine related? Are you doing any uh, reading for enjoyment? Yeah, so, and I, I like a mystery fan. So I read all these really junky mystery, you know, my Kindle unlimited books that are free rather than, than buying them. But the one book I've been reading lately and, and Laura and I were talking before we started about um, horses and, and being on horses is that I'm reading a book that was written by a neuro or a neurologist or a neurosurgeon, and it's called um, the the Rider's Back or uh, Riding Pain Free, and it's a neurosurgeon's guide to having riding pain free with your back issues. And I, I'm I'm summarizing his title. But it's really interesting in that you've got a neurosurgeon who's looked at all of the different disciplines of riding and said, if you do this, here's the types of injuries you can have and the types of exercises you should do to protect yourself. And it's the first time I've read something by, written by anybody who um, is either a neurosurgeon or a, a orthopedic surgeon who looks at equine sports is anything but just a um, way to bring patients into their into their clinics. And, um, and so that's, that's kind of my, I shouldn't say it's a fun read, but it's really been kind of eye opening, given me a set of exercises that I think have been really helpful. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really interesting. I'll have to take a look at it. I'll have yeah. to admit, though, it's it's not usually my back when I'm done writing. It's my legs that, that I take <laughs> right. the next day for. <laughs> yeah. Well, so the, the last question we like to ask is, if you think about somebody who's successful in the swine industry, and, and everybody's version of success I know is different, but if you think about somebody in your mind who's successful, what characteristics about them pop into your mind that you think help them get to where they're at? So I've got to say that one of the luckiest moments I had in my life was the day that Jeff Zimmerman accepted me as his, um, as a master's student with him. And so I look at Jeff as somebody who has 
changed how we practice veterinary medicine. You know, he has looked at um, different samples. Um, you know, I kind of am jealous of the people who came after me because they got to do oral fluid stuff where I was in milking sows. And milking sows is not nearly as much fun as collecting oral fluids. But, you know, he has been one of those people that has looked at the literature in other species, including human medicine, and said, what can we learn and what can we apply to swine medicine? And um, so always having that outward facing look to say, um, who else are doing things that we can take and apply? And I think that's a lot of the really successful practitioners do the same. They're looking at how we apply things that may be used in a totally different context, but that are cool technologies that might be helpful to what we do today. Mm -hmm. I would agree. I think it's always fascinating when people pick up something from human medicine or some other species and, and really take a hold of it and find a way to apply it into the swine industry. I do think that's a fascinating characteristic that yep. I too am quite envious of. Yep. Well, again, I, I want to thank you, Liz, for your time. I know you are very busy in your, in your role at NPPC, um, but the audience does appreciate it. Uh, for all of our audience, again, this is Dr. Liz Wagstrom, who is the Chief Veterinarian uh, at National Pork Producers Council. So thank you, Liz. I hope you have a great day. Thank you, Laura. This was fun. Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of nutrition on this online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding by Dr. Marcio Gonsalves and his world-class invited swine nutritionists. Additionally, you will enjoy an exclusive community to network and exchange ideas. Go now to EliteSwineNutritionist.com.